up on today's show, the federal government announcing all new vehicles sold in Canada must be electric by 2035. The province has put municipalities in a bit of a tough spot by clawing back the amount of money they get in fine collection. And we'll get an update on the situation in BC, just a horrible situation in Lytton with a fire on Wednesday, and now another fire has broken out in Kamloops. Going to get into one of those topics that typically gets people a little bit riled up. Um, we've got a situation here that was developed last week with uh, the federal government announcing um, a change in their targeting. They want all vehicles sold in Canada to be electric by 2035, which is five years sooner than previously announced. And in reality, it's in lockstep with a lot of other countries. They're already targeting that, if not earlier in some cases. But there's differences between these countries, right? So let's get the facts here uh, around electric vehicles and what this announcement means. We're going to chat with Markham Hislop, who's an energy industry analyst and has done a ton of work on this move to electric vehicles and many other areas. Markham, thanks for joining us. Good to chat again. Good morning, Shay. So, okay, this goal that was set by the federal government of 2035, in reality, that brings us a lot closer to, you know, many other countries around the world that have already set that goal, if not sooner in some cases, right? Uh, That's absolutely true. The move from 2040 to 2035 is really not that radical. Uh, The uh, government didn't announce, uh, it said that it would uh, continue with its existing uh, policies, such as incentives, and it's going to invest in some charging infrastructure. There will be additional uh, policy measures that are that will be introduced here over you know over the next uh, few months, uh, but no details on them. Right. So this was really a kind of an incremental move. But I they think it, the the point here is the the importance of this is the trend. And uh, we saw a couple of, uh, about a month ago, the International Energy Agency brought out its net zero to 2050 uh, scenario Mm -hmm. and urging governments to bring in, uh, you know, stricter climate policy and energy policy to get to net zero by 2050. And the two sectors, two out of the four sectors in the economy that we can really decarbonize quickly are electricity and transportation. And so what governments like like in Canada have figured out is that uh, while buildings and industry are difficult to decarbonize, pour your resources into the ones that are easier to lower emissions. And so I think what you're going to see uh, over the next little while is because Canada is already at 82%, you know, low emissions or no emissions in its power, in its electricity system, is they're going to put a lot of resources into electrifying transportation. That's what's really significant about this. This is a, uh, this continues the trend of, of more aggressive policy on the transportation side. And I would expect uh, that we'll see a lot more over the next, say, two to five years. And, you know, Mark, you, you, you talk about the trend, and uh, you, obviously we're seeing that, uh, the announcements, I mean, by the auto manufacturers themselves all over the place. Um, and you mentioned the incentives. When you take a look at what's happened, I, I think Norway, if I was, re- I was doing some reading yesterday, um, has really, really, I think the majority of new vehicles they're sold are electric, but they heavily heavily incentivized this. What kind of things did they do that we may see happening here, do you think? 
Well, it, they uh, Norway started at a different point. So Norway started early and when electric vehicles were significantly more costly uh, to uh, to buy than an internal combustion engine. Uh, the cost of uh, EVs has, has dropped dramatically. Uh, the experts that I interview think that somewhere between 2023 and 2025, that uh, EVs will achieve price parity with uh, uh, with uh, internal combustion mm-hmm. engines. So you know, if you go onto a lot and you're looking at a an EV, it will cost you the same as the equivalent that, that burns gas. Uh, so what we're seeing is that the you know incentives don't have or soon won't have to be as high in order to entice. Uh, 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 buyers to uh, to buy them, uh, and there's other values involved. So, for instance, uh, you know, Alberta's having a bit of a heat wave, as most, most of Western Canada is, and I was uh, reading stories of people in their EVs where they would set it to, uh, like Tesla has a, a mode where you can set it and run your air conditioning, and uh, it'll run all day uh, and take up very little of your battery uh, charge. And you can go out and sit in your uh, Tesla and be cool if your house is hot. There's all sorts of those kinds of uh, additional value that uh, consumers are, are beginning to understand and, and really like. So the, we, the, I, I was talking to uh, Sam Abelsamid, who's a ED analyst for Guidehouse Insights, and I think we're already, frankly, at the inflection point for sales where they're really going to rocket. Sam thinks that we're one or two uh, years away. But the point here is that EVs are really set to uh, to take hold in, in terms of their, you know, to grow their share of the automotive market. Okay. Now, every time we talk about this, Markham, I get the same texts. Um, for example, sure, electric vehicles. We're having brownouts from too many people running their AC units right now. Get real. We don't have the grid to handle it. Um, do we? Do we have the grid? Because I hear from listeners every time we discuss this, and we can't even, you know, what are we going to do? We're going to have to bring in diesel generators and on and on and on. We're going to have to increase power. That's going to increase emissions and on and on. I mean, we're talking about you know, 15 years until this has to be done, according to the federal government. Do we have the capacity and will we have the capacity to, to, to run this kind of system? Shay, I can tell you, I've interviewed experts all over North America and Europe about this very question, and every utility uh, is taking measures to upgrade their grid. And some of them are taking uh, very significant measures because they're anticipating this. And it's, I don't want to minimize, it is, a, it is a bit of a challenge, because at the same time, the utilities are also integrating renewables and, you know, intermittency, that becomes a problem. But the industry is fully engaged with this. Uh, you know, tens of billions of dollars are being invested in modernizing uh, power grids. And, and they're planning and have been planning for a while now for electric transportation. So right from your neighborhood where you maybe need upgraded infrastructure all the way back to uh, throughout the power grid, utilities are, are uh, dealing with this. Uh, the Alberta Energy, uh, the, the uh, ASO in Alberta that runs the power grid released a report a couple of months ago that included these kinds of issues. So uh, there's absolutely no doubt I'm being told by utilities and, and, and experts who, uh, on this topic 
that the grid will be upgraded to accommodate electric vehicles. Okay, so we don't have it now, but we will. Uh, they'll follow the trend and, and make sure they can handle it. Okay, um, now, uh, when we're talking about these vehicles, they're, they're talking about light-duty trucks and passenger vehicles at this point, right? That's what they're focused on? Right. Um, would, is there any discussion in terms of, you know, larger vehicles, uh, buses, transport trucks, things like that, or are those sort of being uh, left on the back burner for now? No, that's a really hot topic. And so far, the, it's the provinces that have been taking initiatives. So BC and Quebec have incentives to begin to electrify medium and heavy-duty commercial vehicles. But there's a, it's not as easy uh, to, to do those uh, in some cases. Now, so for electric, electric buses are great. Uh, there's a lot of money in the last federal budget uh, to support uh, bus electrification. Um, we're seeing some in Alberta, and Ontario, and uh, B.C., are uh, their transit authorities are adopting them in a big way. I mean, they're, they're quieter, they're cleaner, uh, cleaner they, they uh, less maintenance. So there's a lot of advantages uh, for, uh, for buses. Uh, delivery vans. You're going to see electric uh, delivery vans all over the place in, uh, in the next few years. I think Amazon itself uh, has put in orders for 100,000 delivery vans worldwide by 2030. But on the uh, long-haul trucking, for instance, and that, that's a big consumer of, of diesel mm-hmm. fuel, uh, that's much more difficult. And so there's a debate right now about where that's going to go. It could go hydrogen. The uh, transition accelerator at the University of Calgary is currently doing a pilot project evaluating hydrogen uh, uh, freight trucks between uh, Alberta and Calgary. So we'll see the result of that in a year or two. Uh, but, you know, manufacturers like Tesla are bringing out electric semi-trucks. So we'll have to see what happens when those, uh, you know, get on the ground and whether they, they prove out. So uh, the, the heavier uh, transportation modes of transportation are being electrified or will eventually down the road shift to some other kinds of low carbon, carbon fuels. But that will lag probably, my guess is five to 10 years the light-duty cars and cars and trucks. Okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of people wondering, and, and I think it's a fair question in terms of our climate. I mean, although we're talking about Norway, which has a, a relatively similar uh, climate to us, um, you know, are there concerns around, you know, the dead of winter, minus 30, does the battery hold up, things like that? Um, you know, where do we stand? Does our climate make us in some way an outlier in this electrical vehicle move? Uh, there's no there's no question that cold climate affects uh, battery life, and some of the estimates I've seen are you get uh, you lose as much as forty percent of your charge in cold weather. Now the anecdotal evidence, because I have a lot of uh, uh, friends and, and social media uh, connections in Alberta who have EVs, and they report that it's really not that that big a deal. That for all intents and purposes, all they have to do is make sure that they plug in, you know, at the end of the day in, in their garage and they have all the electricity, you know, all the charge right. they need for the next day. That being said, there are much more powerful batteries uh, and lower cost batteries coming around 2025. We're going to see solid state batteries begin to enter the market. Uh, I did an interview with Dr. Peter Harrop from ID Tech X. Uh, who is uh, who predicts that by 2030 we'll see 1,000-mile batteries 
So, okay. You know, if you've got a, a, a super battery that can, uh, then you don't need to worry about uh, co- losing charge in cold weather. So there's a lot of technology and and other things like po- charging infrastructure that are coming that will uh, alleviate that problem. Though uh, probably cold weather uh, region jurisdictions like Alberta will probably be laggards in terms of you know compared to BC and Quebec. But Mark, you make a good point. We're talking about 2035, so let's say 14 years away from now. Um, the technology, the way it's advancing around this is moving so quickly. It Drawing a comparison to where we are today and, you know, the vehicles that can only go, like we, I got a listener saying, you know, I live out in the country, I drive 100 kilometers to get my groceries. This isn't practical for me, you know, other people saying the grid's not ready and things like that, which may be true today, but in 2035, we may be in a completely different position. Just... Talk a bit more about the trends in electric vehicles and what we're seeing in terms of advancements and dealing with some of those problems that obviously they're aware of. Well, the interesting thing here is is uh, that this is, if you think of an S-curve, and I know that may be difficult for your listeners to imagine that, but it, generally what happens is that, you know, and they will be familiar with these terms like innovators, early adopters, and so on. So we're just getting past the early adopter stage where we're getting to where the, you know, for a lot of people, electric vehicles are a practical solution, but they won't be a practical solution for 100% of consumers. Right. So just the, the examples that you mentioned there. And so those people will adopt further up the, up the curve because it just, you know, when an electric vehicle becomes practical for them. And, and it might not be until 2035 or 2040 that those folks buy a truck, but they will be at the very top of the curve, sort of the end of the, right. of the adoption process. And I think that's the thing is, is we have to think of this not from anecdote. You know, what, how, what, how, that has, how does this affect me? And therefore, that'll affect everybody uh, in, the, in Canada or the United States or the global markets. The trend is that there are lots of people at the beginning of the curve for whom electric vehicles are already economical and practical, and they don't need the requirements of you know driving, you know, 500 kilometers a day or driving out yeah. into rural areas charging infrastructure. So, the while your listeners are absolutely correct, they're correct for them, not for you know a lot of the consumers who are considering EVs. Yeah, and, and it's and it's going to be a gradual process. Uh, last one for you, Markham. You know, as a country, we've talked a lot about being involved in the new uh, green energy industry and the emerging you know industry that we know is going to be there and is already developed in a, in a lot of ways. How are we doing in terms of a country and uh, you know getting involved in when you when you're talking about the shift to electric vehicles? There, there's money to be made. It's a whole new industry. Are are we doing anything with 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 batteries with with the vehicle construction itself? Anything like that? Is Canada getting involved in this the way we should be? Well, we were late to the game. We were not one of we were not at the leading edge of that curve. Uh, but we're getting into it now. The last year, year and a half, we've seen a lot of announcements around, uh, you know, the automakers investing in EV manufacturing plants in Ontario. We're seeing uh, some battery plants being set up. Uh, we already have Canadian manufacturers of electric buses, New Flyer in Manitoba, Lion Electric in Quebec. We're getting into battery recycling, Lifecycle in Mississauga. And there's some exciting opportunities for uh, for Alberta. Uh, so, for instance, uh, two great companies, really exciting uh, companies uh, that strip lithium from fluids. So E3 Metals out of Calgary that uh, takes uh, strips lithium out of uh, oil and gas produced water. And then uh, Summit Nanotech, 
which uh, has a, a, a membrane uh, technology uh, that came out of oil and gas that strips it from briny underground uh, underground briny water. And so there there's uh, lots of technology here that uh, Alberta can take advantage of. And I'm still I'm still a, a big fan of. Because once you get into EV manufacturing, you don't need the kind of economies of scale necessarily. You can do custom vehicles. And I've always thought, you know, that Alberta would be a great place to set up uh, EV truck manufacturing, Mm -hmm. for instance. And, you know, suited to maybe uh, cold weather, natural resource extraction climates, you know, whether it's Russia or wherever you have to do this kind of thing and and manufacture design and manufacture them in Alberta because you can you can uh, do that now in a way you couldn't uh, uh, you know with internal combustion engine so there's lots of opportunity uh Canada, North America Europe and Asia are all competing to be you know dominant in this space and we need to be get on it sooner rather than later we're making progress but there's still much uh, progress to be made long way to go awesome thanks so much mark i appreciate your time Always a pleasure. Thank you. That is Markham Hill. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armor all. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Slip, who is an energy industry analyst and uh, has just done a ton of work around this. In April of last year, the provincial government uh, unilaterally changed the way they do business with municipalities in the area of fine collection. Now, prior to making the change, the province collected about 26% of the money, and the rest was left for the municipalities. Now, they've upped it by about 50%. They keep 40% of that money. It's a fairly sizable jump that has really blasted a hole in the budgets of dozens of Alberta municipalities that are now short a bunch of revenue they're used to. So, let's get some details on exactly what it's meaning for different uh, communities across our province. We're going to chat with Barry Morishita, who is the Mayor of Brooks and the President of the Association of Urban Municipalities of Alberta. Um, Barry, thanks for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Uh, thanks very much, Shay, for the interest. So, first of all, let's just sort of uh, get the lay of the land here. We're talking about provincial fines collected by municipalities, right? What kind of uh, fines are we talking about here? So, so we're, we're talking any provincial tickets. So we're talking, you know, speeding tickets, uh, any those kinds of things. And also sometimes um, municipal bylaw tickets, if they're not paid for in a set period of time, they flip into a provincial ticket because municipalities don't have the ability to prosecute, right? So then the province becomes becomes a provincial ticket and they take their share of those as well. Gotcha. Okay. Now, has this been a longstanding, like since the beginning of time, it's the municipality's responsibility to collect these fines primarily? Yeah. So if you have your own municipal police force, and so we have 
several communities with their own municipal forests and then uh, a lot of communities that are contracted to the RCMP, like mine, to provide municipal policing. Yes, we've always been, you know, our jurisdiction. Uh, we deal with those uh, issues, traffic safety and all kinds of other things. Um, yeah, so we've always collected them. And, and, and the fine revenue has always been, uh, you know, we supply a percentage to the province right. to take care of the prosecution, yeah. Now, that change in revenue, do I have the numbers right? You used to get um, about 74%. Now you get 60% of what you collect. Is that right? That's about right, yes. Um, you know, and, and in pure dollars, is about $32 million less. Eventually. Uh, than we did. That's correct. Okay. Uh, and as you said, this money is typically used for... Well, for for safety and law enforcement, right? Right, because most most municipalities, what they do is they take that fine revenue and they put it into their uh, community safety budgets, whether it's for preventative, whether it's for actually in uh, policing budgets, or, you know, that's typically what it does. So, um, yeah, so that money disappeared from that, and and all uh, the municipalities that were impacted had to make either budget adjustments, so less service, or they would have had to raise taxes in order to keep the service level up the same as it was the year before. Now, how many municipalities are raising the alarm here? From the reading I've been doing, it's dozens, right? Like dozens and dozens of communities. Yeah, because every, I think there's about 42, 45 contract communities somewhere in that range. There's also uh, eight or nine that have their own municipal police forces, and they've all been impacted by this. So, you know, for my community, for instance, we lost about uh, $68,000. That's about half of a police officer, but you can't contract half a police officer. Right. So between that and other downloads, we determined, we decided to manage with one less uh, active police officer on in the community. So that's a big deal when you only have 20. Okay, so you've gone from like 20 down to 19 police officers, yeah. at least in large part because of this change. Right. Uh, downloads from, uh, yeah, and you know, if for us, uh, that type of um, increase for us is either half a percentage, just for one police officer, uh, between half and one percent tax increase to keep a police officer on the road, and then, um, uh, or, or a reduction in service. We don't really have any options. We have to balance our budget. Right. We don't have the options of running deficits. And the other thing, Shay, that's really difficult to manage for us is that it was, uh, you know, w- it's done without notice. So we're already done our budgets by December of the vast majority of us, and now we have to deal with an adjustment three quarters of the way through the year, because, or a quarter of the way through the year, because a budget has to be done. So okay. that's difficult as well. Okay, so Barry, let's talk about that for a second. This was a decision that was made around the cabinet table. There was no consultation. There was no indication this may be coming down. This just was dropped in your lap out of the clear blue sky. Do I have that right? Yep, that's right. We uh, we learned about it on the embargo day for budget, which is the day of the budget, just like uh, a reporter would have, for instance. That's when that's when we learned of it. Wow. Um, has there been discussion um, further since this announcement was made with the province on this? We, we've made it really clear that we would uh, like to talk about it and that why the arbitrary, you know, grab for money. And we, and we understand, you know, um, that, you know, the prosecution shouldn't cost the provincial government anything. We understand that. And we've always said to them, hey, you know, we understand that there's fiscal problems in Alberta. We would like to work with you. But there are unintended consequences when you arbitrarily change the the finances of communities and municipalities. So we would like to be involved in that in the beginning. And that is, again, one of the problems uh, with this system. And, uh, you know, quite frankly, because we're not involved in that. So we just get to deal with it. We did reach out and say, hey, can we talk about this? And we were basically told no. Okay. A couple other things, because there, there's more to it than... Like, 
municipalities, it's not like you can just go in and, as you said, increase taxes by this much. There, there's rules around that, too, that, again, come from the province, right? Absolutely. So, first of all, there's a lot of political pressure. If you recall a lot of the things that have said, been said provincially about municipality is, you know, we've, you know, we've lowered corporate taxes, for instance, so you need to keep your taxes low to yep. help the economy. We're all aware of that stuff. You know, I, a vast majority of uh, the municipalities in this province have had zeros or ones very low while trying to maintain services and accepting a lot of downloading and loss of revenue from the province over the last two or three years. So we've done that part. And then, you know, we, we pass a budget in uh, December, which is, you know, it's voted on and passed. And then we do a, a mill rate a law uh, that we do later on the year before we send out tax notices. But we can't just all of a sudden mid-year just say, oh, guess yeah. what, we're short. Uh, we need to change that. We can't collect more property tax like in June or July, right? We are stuck with what we're stuck with. So the only adjustments after that point are to cut services or to uh, take money from somewhere else. That's, that's it. Um, I'm wondering about a sort of a double whammy situation here because you, you're, you're losing um, this portion of revenue, which goes to community safety. Um, and we also know that your costs of policing for a lot of urban municipalities around the province, and what they pay the province for that kind of contracting, that's gone up as well, right? Yeah, well, you see, there's, and it's going to continue to go up. So, uh, yes, we all we have that in front of us. We have the RCMP contract negotiations going on. We know that they're looking at uh, body-worn cameras and uh, a service revolver modernization, all of those things, uh, the government, uh, you know, sometimes, like I said, if we we're in a room to talk about it, we could talk about yeah. these things, but we don't. But all of those things are going to impact our budgeting. We should be in a room talking about how to provide policing across the province in, a, in an efficient, consistent, you know, way. And because things are changing all the time, funding is, and it's a federal and provincial issue as well. So we shouldn't forget that it's a federal, some of it relies on the federal government. But at the end of the day, we all have to deal with this, but the way the province imposes those changes on municipalities when we have very little flexibility in budgeting is is just not a good way to do it and it creates a lot of problems for municipalities so everybody every municipality across the province that's 5000 people or more are paying for municipal policing and so that's how many communities are involved and there's that's big dollars for a small community and as you can see when you look at this chart you know 10 11 million dollars for Calgary that's a significant amount of service change one way or another that's and uh, we need to realize that that makes a difference in, in people's day-to-day -day lives and as you said in your community it means less officers on the street in chatting with other municipalities um, is that the situation they're looking at you know deficits or reduction in services I mean I guess that's the only possible options they have on the table right right so they can't run deficits so they, they'd have to either reprioritize so s someone loses so they yeah. have a zero-sum game budget wise so you can't spend more than you collect so that's one so they have to make either priority decisions um, I know communities that have had, you know, community safety programs, whether they're putting in LED sidewalk or crosswalks, you know, trying to improve safety that way, have had to scale those things back. Um, I know communities that have used their uh, fine revenues to support more community policing by using uh, community peace officers or bylaw officers. I know communities that have to, have to scale that back. Um, so, it, you know, it's a multitude of things uh, that that communities make adjustments trying to reflect what's most important for their individual cities, towns, and uh, 
areas, but uh, at the end of the day, it just comes to that, less service or more taxes. And while we always try to provide good value for money, it's it's difficult when you're rushed, right? You get rushed to a decision. Uh, you have to get that balance uh, balancing done because you don't have a choice under the Municipal Government Act. So, again, it would be nice to be in the room and say, hey, this is what we're planning on doing for three years. You know, we need to collect this. We need to do that. How are we going to do that and still maintain policing? What does that mean to your taxes? We got in a room and talked about this uh, at least uh, it would be a, a, a breath of fresh air in that regard. Yeah, it would definitely change things. Uh, Barry, thanks so much for uh, walking us through it. I appreciate it. No, thanks for the interest, Shay. And, and like I said, municipalities, it's, it's a day-to-day thing, and it affects people uh, Yeah, for sure. right now. Excellent. Okay, thank you, Barry. Thank you. That is Mayor Barry Morishita of Brooks, who is also president of the Association of Urban Municipalities of Alberta. Right now, though, we're going to get an update on the situation in British Columbia. We have Paul Hasem joining us now. Paul is a news anchor for Global News Morning in BC. Uh, Paul, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me on. So, yeah, let's just get an update. I guess let's start with the newest development first, and that would be Kamloops. What's going on there? They had a pretty good wildfire spark overnight, didn't they? Yeah, and that's all due to thunderstorms coming through the area. I mean, just for reference, 24 wildfires as of Monday. We're now at 160 wildfires burning in D.C., so this situation is changing by the moment and not in a good way. Uh, It's been so tinder dry, obviously. That heat dome that we got first has now made its way to you guys in Alberta. It has really made the vegetation just tinder dry, and that just sparked up. Now, we are just outside Lytton, and they are dealing with more pain. Of course, that Mm -hmm. entire village burned down on Wednesday, Shay. Well, overnight, 40 more properties evacuated on the north side of the village. Right now, it's more just concern. The damage truly has been done. That was Wednesday night when that fire ripped through in moments. Like, I'm talking moments. This was minutes. This is moments. Like, they were forced to evacuate in that second and for a couple of people it sounds like it was too late we believe that two people have died there's a number of people who are still on account right yeah for, i was going to ask you but given the situation they're hopeful that they have just not checked in because people went a lot of different directions a lot of different evacuation centers four evacuation centers in this immediate area but of course if they went south to hope they may have just continued on gone to chilliwack vancouver so there is hope that these people may just have not checked in at this point but that being said, we talked to someone at an evacuation center in Merritt last night. Her dad is a former firefighter. He lives on the Linton First Nation band. When that was fire rolled in, he said, I'm staying, I'm fighting this thing. She hasn't heard from him since Wednesday night. So she is petrified, as you can imagine. So it's very much a moving situation. As far as we're concerned, we're on the south side of Linton and Shea, actually, when you and I were covering the wildfires in Fort McMurray, yeah. it's very similar to that. We can't really get in right now, and it's not important for us to get in just yet because it's a steady stream of emergency personnel. Even people who do live there, the evacuees are driving up and they're getting turned around. It's just too dangerous to even go in right now. So it's very much, as I mentioned, a changing situation by the minute, but it is, uh, uh, in your last segment, you said putting on a brave face. A lot yeah. of people have been forced to do that right now. You know, Paul, like you say, it's, it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's a fluid situation. It's still ongoing. What about the fire itself that, that took out the town? Has, has it, is it still burning into other locations? As you said, there's new evacuations being added. Is it the same fire? Is it continuing to spread, or are they bringing it under control? No, it is the same fire. Okay. It is growing. It is out of control. So at last update, 9,000 hectares and growing. It is just moved north. I mean, the town right. 
is done. It's not going to reburn the town. So that's now it's the, the fires moving north. And that's just, as mentioned, one of 116 fires burning in the province. So BC wildfires doing everything they can, but all they can really say now is that they are monitoring it. It is considered out of control, and they just need to get everyone and everything out of the way that where it's towards its burning. Uh, nine fires of note, most notably in that Kamloops area because they saw that lightning. But we are feeling a ton of wind here right now. We got here in our live location this morning, I think around 6 a.m., and it was balmy. It was warm. It was strange. I was like, okay, this is why. This is, you know, the hottest place in Canada yeah. three straight days. Uh, but then all of a sudden the winds picked up, and it's been whipping ever since. So they did see a little rain in this area overnight, but it came with lightning, and that lightning and that wind, as you know, is just a terrible recipe, and that's what we've been seeing here. And honestly, just talking to the people, it's, it's now become a story of humans, and just uh, the humans that are involved in this right now. We talked to a couple who actually moved from Alberta 20 years ago. They said they came to Lytton with nothing. They built a life there. They weren't able to afford insurance. Their house is gone. They came here 20 years ago with nothing. They say they plan to go back to Alberta again with nothing. So it is heartbreaking. And I think it's important to remember, Shay, this is the beginning of wildfire season here in BC. And what a heartbreaking way to start. I mean, it's so early. What what are they doing with the people who had to, to get out of Lytton? There's nowhere to go back to. Where are they right now? They're just in different evacuation centers, and so that is what we are waiting for right now. I mean, the province has yet to call this a state of emergency. You have to assume that is going to be happening. Apologies, just get another call there. But you have to assume that state of emergencies is going to be happening within the next couple of days, and those evacuees are going to different evacuation centers. I know there's one in Kelowna. There is one in Merritt. There's one down in Hope. There is one in Chilliwack, and that might be the best to go, given the situation those other locations. I mean, we talk about Merritt, we talk about Kelowna, we talk about Kamloops being very dangerous at this time right now. And so I think that that's where we're at right now. A lot of them are probably to family, where it's a little bit of a safer safer situation. We're hopeful that's where they are. As mentioned, there's still a couple of people who are unaccounted for. But, of course, with all these wildfires ranging in such a fast-moving situation, Officials are just trying to do their best to track down people, make sure they're safe, move on and start fighting the next fire. So uh, I should mention that, you know, with all these stories of heartbreak, there is hope. We are just 10 minutes outside Boston Bar, if you know the area. It's yep. very close to Lytton, close to Lillooet area as well. The woman running the RV has free food, free juice, you know, just making sure that everyone here is looked after and people have drinks, they can have a beer after what would can't imagine the day they've gone through, and the Longhouse and the First Nation in Lillooet, they're taking any supplies they can. So they're doing whatever they can to help, as we always know in these situations, worst of times, bring out the best in people. That is the case. But I did speak to the MP last night for the region. He covers this massive region. It goes stretches all the way down to Chilliwack. And he was saying that he's going to be calling on Prime Minister Justin Trudeau today to match all funds donated to the Red Cross. So there's a hope that if anyone does want to help, that they can help via the Red Cross and those donations will get matched by the federal government, and that's the pressure he's going to be putting on Prime Minister Justin Trudeau today. Excellent. Okay. Awesome update. Thanks so much, Paul. Thank you, Shay. Talk soon. Yeah, you bet. That's Paul Hasem, who is a morning news anchor at Global P- uh, BC. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.